G'day, I'm Sam. G'day, I'm Mike. And we are the Extras. Mike, well, welcome back. Welcome back, Sam. <laughs> Good to be here. Uh, we had a week off, uh, but uh, we are back with lots of questions on chapters 12 through 14. And uh, that's where we were on Sunday. Give us a quick recap of those chapters. Sure, we are in the middle of a worship war. Uh, God, Father, Holy, uh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, uh, in battle with the unholy trinity of the dragon, Beast 1 and Beast 2. Uh, and we are caught in the crossfires, and the call, the demand on us in Revelation 12 14 is to persevere. Uh, persevere even when Satan accuses you. Persevere by fighting the accusation with the truth of the gospel. Persevere even when, though Satan tries to deceive us to worship anyone or anything other than God. Uh, persevere with the truth. Mm. And persevere by following the Lamb uh, in a life of purity, mm. even though that's going to be a tough life. Yeah, so perseverance was our new angle on that same period uh, that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Yes, We've got some questions, quite a few, so we'll, we'll try and move through them. Um, the first question has to do with that uh, unholy trinity that you mentioned of um, uh, the devil and the beast and the dragon. Um, uh, and It's about the origins of the devil, um, noting that often Revelation 12, perhaps with passages like Isaiah 14, are, are used to explain where the devil came from and how he came to be on earth, say prior to Genesis 3, uh, he's been thrown down. But then... Revelation 12 seems to suggest that the reason he was thrown down was the, the blood of the Lamb, which then seems to suggest that the battle with Michael and the angels happens after the cross. Um, so how, does, how do we understand the timeline there? Yeah, really good question. Origins of evil, um, look, it is a bit of a mystery. The Bible doesn't give us all the details. We know God's in control of all things. We're not exactly sure how evil got there and what, what's the serpent doing there in the garden in Genesis 3. Um, we just don't know. Um, how does the timing fit, fit in? Um, so Revelation 12 to 14, uh, uh, Satan is, is thrown down to earth because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of the blood of the Lamb. But the throwing down, it, it's symbolic perhaps more than literal. Uh, the, the throwing down means defeated. Uh, Jesus has conquered. Um, and in that sense, Satan is thrown down. Now, does that mean Satan wasn't on earth before the cross? Well, no, because he was in Genesis 3. Uh, Satan was uh, in, on earth in Genesis 3, but Satan was also actually in the heavenly realms. We see that in Job chapter 1 in the Old Testament. And similarly, in the New Testament, we can still kind of see Satan operating on earth and in the heavenly realms. But in the New Testament, post-Jesus, we know that Satan is completely defeated, completely conquered. All he can do is accuse, and we can fight that. All he can do is deceive, and we can fight that. Um, and so we don't have to fear Satan anymore. Okay, so it's more of an expression of the defeat of the devil rather than about where he is exactly. in space and time. Exactly. Okay. Um, Mike, in these chapters, there's quite a bit of numbers. There's 1,260, there's 42 months, there's three and a half years, there's time, times, and half a time. Um, help us understand the numbers here. Yeah, so where have we seen this before? Uh, Daniel chapters 7 to 12, we see these numbers. They're, they're all kind of variations of three and a half, uh, three and a half months, three and a half years, that's behind the numbers. Uh, and what they symbolize is both uh, incompletion, if you think of seven being the complete number, this is half of completion or incompletion. Um, 
And so uh, imperfect. But also these numbers symbolize that God has put uh, a limit on this time. This, this is a limited time, if you like, even a short time compared to the perfect timing of God. Mm. So for those Christians who are suffering during these worship wars, um, the encouragement is uh, God's got it under control. It's only going to happen for a short time. Persevere. Mm. So at three and a half, half a seven, it's, it's limited. Um, hang in there. Hang not, in there. It's not forever. That's it. Whereas seven's forever. It's only three and a half. That's it. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, back to some of the stuff about the beasts. In, in chapter 13 now, um, we got some mentions of uh, the beasts being permitted to do various evil things, um, perhaps waging war um, on the world, uh, performing evil on behalf of the beast. Um, the question is, I would assume that this is the dragon giving authority to the beast. Is that correct? Um, and, and if so, does that mean that God has given authority to the dragon to do evil <laughs> to heaven and earth? Um, hasn't he already been defeated? Um, help us out here. In, in who's, who's in control? Who's got authority over evil? Yeah, thank you. Again, it's another kind of mystery. We don't have all the answers. But what we do know from Revelation is that, yes, the dragon does commission the beasts to do his will um, and he gives them some sort of authority, some sort of some sort of power. But we know he's defeated, so there's a mystery there. But again, we know that this power is just the power to accuse and to deceive. So it's not much of a power. Um, but we also know that the dragon is under full control of of God, um, and so somehow God, kind of God is not out of control of the dragon. Somehow God's in control. Um, and that's comforting because that means that evil is not outside of the control of God. And that's, that's a great comfort to those who are, who are suffering under evil. Um, and yet the mystery is God is in control but not responsible. God is still holy and good even though he can use evil. And if Satan uses evil for one purpose, we know God can twist that for his own good purposes, ultimately for, even for our good. So there is a degree of mystery here. Totally. There's no doubt that God is in control, even over evil. Absolutely. But there is a degree of mystery, and part of that is with our struggle to hold two things together that seem like they are at odds, but are actually both true. Absolutely. Being that God is totally in control, nothing happens outside of his hand, but also that God is totally good, and everything he does is wholly righteous and wise and good uh, the bible holds both of them together and we struggle with that totally i struggle with that <laughs> yeah and i guess part of that is uh, is our finiteness and and um and also perhaps in the limit of our of what god has revealed to us in that perhaps uh, revelation is an unveiling and we're getting a, a little bit of a glimpse into what's going on in the heavenly realms and in god's big purposes but it's not the full picture there's a sense in which we only see in part paul talks about that in, in uh, two corinthians um Yet we're going to see one day face to face. Um, so, and we're waiting for that day when when we will go. Oh, that makes sense. Now I get it. I get it. Now I don't have to ask Sam and Mike my extra <laughs> questions. No more questions in heaven. Yeah, and, and and we'll see how God was working for good in all those things. Yeah, uh, which maybe sometimes you get even now. Uh, sometimes with enough time, you can see how God's working for good. Not always. No, but. Sometimes. With perspective, sometimes we can see it. Yeah. Other times, no, that's right. we still have questions we're going to ask God when we see him. That's right. And, and I guess we will have that heavenly ultimate perspective one day and see God's goodness in it all. Come Lord Jesus. 
right. Uh, moving along. Um, you mentioned a little bit about Nero on um, Sunday. Yes. Um, and about the idea that uh, behind some of the imagery in these beasts, um, there, there might have been some sort of allusions to Nero and potentially a, a rumour that he would come back to life after death. Um, the question is, is it possible that the original readers, or even John perhaps, um, uh, believed that? Yeah, I mean, uh, from what I've read, these rumours were pretty widespread and potentially believable because Nero was such a powerful guy when he was around and made life so hard for Christians. So it could be, I mean, I don't know, but it could be that the Christians were fearful that Nero would come back. But the whole point of uh, Revelation 13 is uh, the beast only seemed fatally wounded and only seemed to come back to life. In other words, it's a fake, it's a false, it's a counterfeit. Um, and I take it that's the point. Nero wasn't going to come back. Uh, there's only one person who's died and risen again, and that's the Lord Jesus. And if you're with him, you, you're, you're fine. Yep. Yeah, fabulous. Okay. Um, one of the things we, we did delve into a little bit on Sunday was about the, the influence of the devil over uh, things and, and, and his deceit in, um, in pulling people away from, from trusting in the true Trinity and the true God. Um, uh, and, and I guess that's the, that's the picture in in, uh, in chapter thirteen. Um, so the questions come in. Does that mean if the devil is kind of working through all sorts of things in in the world? What about things like TV shows, music, movie? Are they from the devil? And and if so, to what extent do we need to look out for sort of his influence through them? Um, is it just stuff, or does it actually threaten the way we follow God? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, is anything completely innocent? Is anything completely neutral? Um, yeah, probably not as much as we think. Um, Satan is at work and he's a deceiver and uh, he is the the king of the he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air mm. um, and he's trying really hard to deceive us and distract us from the things of God and he can take and use anything and good things um, but even what we would perhaps call neutral things. Uh, so whenever you're kind of involved with uh, you know, engaging with culture, when you're looking at movies or TV, um, some of the examples that were given in this question, um, you don't want to be naive and just assume that this is just a neutral thing and there's no kind of message that's coming through to us. Mm. Um, you don't want to be naive. You actually want to be a, a critical uh, user of culture. Um, it doesn't mean you reject it all. Some things we can embrace. Um, other things that we need to perhaps redeem, um, but uh, we want, we don't want to be naive, and we don't want to just assume that when we turn the telly on, for example, that everything that comes our way is, is somehow not going to affect us. Mm. Or couldn't be from uh, Satan trying to t- mm. tear us away from from God. Yeah, so that's partly in that we often think about oh, if it's going to be Satan, it could be some massive satanic attack or something <laughs> like that. And, and the devil certainly exists is real and can do that kind of yes. stuff. But there's, there's, the Bible talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's the idea sometimes the sin comes from satanic attack. Sometimes it comes from your flesh, you're just your own evil desires that are in you. But other times it comes from the world. Um, yes. And the, so that there is a sense in which the culture and the things around us are even that even they can be used by the devil to deceive and point us away from Christ. Um, but like you said, not everything in culture is bad. You know, non-Christians clean their teeth, and that's okay. We can accept that, receive that. Um, they Toothbrushes wear... are good. You're yep, that, I think okay. we can receive that bit of culture. Non-Christians wear pants. We like that. Um, <laughs> that's that's fine. Other things, yeah, they need to be. But some things need to be rejected. Some yes. things are profoundly unhelpful in our culture: sexual immorality, uh, 
I mean, seances, all that kind of, you know, weird stuff. There's, there's things that we should reject and say, no, that is wicked. Yes. And then there's other stuff we should redeem. Um, you know, we say, look, that's there's something good there. There's part of God's goodness in creation, but perhaps, you know, like uh, different kinds of music. You can sing about sexual immorality or you can sing about the Lord Jesus. The style of music you use yeah, nice. isn't evil in and of itself, but better than singing about sexual immorality is singing... If you, wanna, if, you wanna, if you want to do hip hop music to the glory of the Lord Jesus, great. Just don't do it to sexual immorality. So you redeem that part. You of redeem culture. that bit of culture. So some things you receive, they're fine. Some things you reject, uh, they're, they're just wrong. You shouldn't shouldn't go near them. Other things you want to redeem, um, and there's a, wis- a degree of wisdom knowing how to do that, isn't there? Nice. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, we'll roll along. Um, chapter fourteen. Um, uh, verse 4 talks about those who did not defile themselves with women. Uh, we've got a couple of questions on this verse. Um, h- how do we make sense of that idea of uh, what's it talking about with defiling themselves with women there? Yeah, thank you. This is a really key question and it, uh, we're going to kind of revisit this language as we keep going on in Revelation. And I think there's probably three layers of understanding. I only touched on one of them in my talks on Sunday. But there's really three layers to this kind of idea of sexual immorality. Um, there's just the physical having sex with someone that you're not married to, um, and so that is not following the lamb. Um, the second way is perhaps a spiritual understanding of sexual immorality. That is um, to kind of go after any other god other than God um, is a form of sexual immorality. And again, we'll get that language as we go on in Revelation. But also you get that language in the Old Testament. Israel are often mm. accused of being sexually immoral. Mm. They're um, the harlot. They're yeah. the harlot, that's yeah. right. The whoredom. Mm. Um, now, but there's a third layer that's kind of interesting, which is a kind of an in-between layer, that um, uh, uh, often cult worship in, the, uh, in, in uh, Revelation's day um, involve going to a temple and uh, perhaps kind of those food sacrifices and other sacrifices, but there was also participation with cult prostitutes and actually having sex as a way of worshipping that God. And I, so I take it that the particular reference to uh, women there is not drawing a distinction between kind of only men are part of the 144,000 and women can't be, or, mm. or men are more. Or what I think that's a reference to the cult practice of worship, mm. um, of worshipping false gods. Mm, yeah, so to, so to recognise that particular thing. And we get a few references to, to that kind of stuff um, even earlier in the messages to the churches, don't we? Back in... Um... Yeah, that's right, in, in chapters 2 and 3. Um, and you often get the language of the kind of the food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality mm. put together. So, for example, chapter 2, verse 14 yes. and chapter 2, verse 20. Yeah. Um, so it's all about kind of idol worship, uh, cult worship and yeah. sexual immorality in that context, which, obviously, which often um, involves sex with temple prostitutes. Mm. And that kind of hooks in then a little bit to that kind of false worship and that false thing that's going right through. Um, this chunk of, of revelation, isn't yeah. it? Of, of rather than worshiping the true God in the true way, you're worshiping the false God in the false way. That's it. Uh, which is already alluded to with Jezebel and the prophetess and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so. we can see how the two are even linked in our day because often Christians who um, commit sexual immorality, it often is kind of a sign that they're kind of moving away from God. Unfortunately, mm. so you can kind of see how even the physical and the spiritual are. 
uh, linked even in our day. Mm. Okay, um, that, that's really helpful. Um, I think that kind of wrap, there were a couple of questions around fourteen four, but I think that that covers most of them. To be honest, um, great, that's really helpful. Um, we'll uh, we'll jump into this one, um, which kind of ties into our proverb series at one level, um, <laughs> which is what does it mean to fear God? That language comes up in Revelation fourteen as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's a great verse, uh, chapter fourteen, verse seven. It says. Uh, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs, the water. I take it fear God and giving him glory and worshipping him are all kind of similar ideas, and they all kind of speak to each other. Um, To fear God, probably in this context, actually means fear his judgment. Mm. Um, We should be afraid of the coming judgment um, if we're not in Christ. Um, and we should fear it even if we are in Christ to the point that it keeps us from or keeps us in Christ and, and helps us to not go after the false gods. Mm. Um, so fear God um, in, in that context is kind of fearing him and his judgment, but also giving him glory is an aspect of fearing God. Worshipping God is an element of fearing God. It's, it's treating God as God and submitting to him, mm. um, which Sam said, uh, as you said, Sam, uh, links us about to, to Proverbs. Yeah, and, and I guess that helps us to make sense of the importance of the lamb because um, the lamb has come and was slain to save us from the God who should be feared. Um, Absolutely. And I think sometimes we want to take away the fear of God and take away the wrath of God and the, the anger and vengeance of God. But in doing so, you lose any meaning in the death of Christ because he has come to save you from the anger of God and uh, and I think that that helps us to further appreciate the, the work of God for us if we understand that God is to be feared and I found this personally just really helpful in reading Revelation is it just keeps reminding me of heaven and hell mm. that they're real and I should really fear hell and I should really long for heaven a lot more than I do mm. absolutely okay um Chapter 14, verse 13 has that little turn of phrase um, that their works will follow them. Um, Simple question, what's that phrase getting at? So we know that we are saved by grace through faith. This is a gift from God, not by works. That's Ephesians 2. Um, So we're saved by faith alone, but faith alone is never alone. In other words, faith in Jesus Christ will always express itself in works, in deeds, in service. And I take it that's what 1413 is talking about. These are the evidence of our faith, um, which uh, which will go with us into the new heavens and the new earth. Mm. Okay, yeah, simple. Um, uh, this question is about hell, which gets talked about a fair bit, but I think particularly in, in chapter 14 with the idea of um, Jesus uh, as the lamb kind of overseeing um, hell. Yeah. Um, and the question is here that hell, it says hell in my mind is Satan's domain, but you mm-hmm. kind of frame both heaven and hell as being under God's power. Um, and with God, God's sovereignty, that makes sense. But I'm struggling a bit with the concept. Can you expand? Yeah, I'll try. And it is a bit confusing, but I think the caricature that we often call to mind is that heaven is God's home and hell is mm. Satan's home. Um, and, and it's kind of Satan's in charge of hell, God's in charge of heaven. But the Bible doesn't let us play that. Um, the Bible clearly says that God is sovereign over all things, over heaven, earth, and hell. And so um, 
Satan's not in charge of hell. Satan is in hell, being punished in hell for being mm. the accuser and the deceiver. And Satan uh, is is not ruling, is not enjoying any authority there. He is completely under the authority and the judgment of God. So we've got to just kind of change the caricature mm. that God is sovereign over all things. And in heaven, he's going to be present in his goodness and his love. In hell, he's going to be also kind of present in his wrath and his judgment and his anger. And I guess it makes sense of, of Jesus being the one who, uh, through the pages of the New Testament, is the biggest uh, warner against hell. Um, oh, yes. He knows exactly what's at stake here as the one who is the judge. Um, Acts 17 sort of picks up that idea of Jesus uh, being the one who will judge the whole earth and God's given, given proof to that by raising him from the dead. Jesus knows just how horrible hell is and... Uh, it's it's not some he doesn't delegate that he he, he is um, yeah he is uh, is in control um, of both heaven and hell. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we've got two more to go here, Mike. Um, uh, someone's asking the question, uh, and this one I think came in even after question time um, uh, on on Sunday because uh, we've been talking about the about sexual immorality and some of the dangers there in in the live question time on Sunday night. Um, and someone's asking the question, look, how do I go about talking to people about the dangers of, of premarital sex without sounding like I'm judging them? And, and in fact, how do I even bring it up? Uh, yeah, thank you. It's a helpful question. Um, sexual immorality, it's a tough thing to talk to people about. Um, our sexual practices and ethics are something that we kind of keep close to our chest. Um, but uh, God is God over all of our lives, and in love, we want to um, bring the word of the gospel to bear on everybody, uh, the Christian and the non-Christian. And uh, we want to bring, bring the gospel of grace and forgiveness and love, but also the gospel that says the way you live matters. Um, it's part of kind of fearing God, the question earlier. Um, and so if you're going to talk to a non-Christian, was it Christian, non-Christian? It says here, um, both actually, it says to a Christian yeah. slash non-Christian. Yeah, so if you're going to talk to a non-Christian, um, you probably wouldn't address the sexual morality first thing. What you'd talk to them about is the Lord Jesus mm. and his death and resurrection and the, the way that he um, is our only hope in this life and the life to come and the fact that we need to be forgiven and we need to repent that's where you'd you start and you talk about that not just their sexual immorality but their whole life lived in rebellion to god absolutely and, and their need to repent absolutely so you you you, you preach the gospel to them mm. um to the christian yeah it's interesting um the, the word judge you know we shouldn't judge um it's interesting judgment isn't necessarily as bad as we think it is from scripture um perhaps we we uh we know the sermon on the mount where jesus says you know do not judge um we take that and that's good take that on board but we've also got to marry that with other parts of scripture that says actually as the church we should be judging in terms of calling each other to account for our sin so 1 corinthians 5 is a classic example where someone was sexually immoral uh with their mother-in-law uh, and Paul says we should be judging that and calling people to repent and giving them grace and offering them forgiveness but if they're not going to repent then he says actually you should boot them out of the church mm, I think that's right and he sets up there that it is our business to judge those within the church it, it's not our business to judge those on the outside God will judge them uh, we're to call them to repentance and then know that God will judge them but this idea that, that invades some of our thinking that any kind of judgment or discerning um, or making a kind of um, sort of opinion about something, Christians should hold off that completely. 
um, I think it's not quite biblical. We need to wrestle with what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on that's the Mount, right. and that's what we're teaching through um, Term Four in uh, in church. So yeah, look, look forward, forward to that. To that. Um, but we need to hold the whole counsel of Scripture on this, and one Corinthians five in particular, which leads on to. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul then goes on to say, actually, one day the saints are going to be part of the work of judging the whole world. And so we are to judge uh, even what goes on within the church and um, not not to feel like, oh, I shouldn't say anything to my friend who's sinning against the lamb um, and you know risking hell. I shouldn't say anything lest I might judge them. No, you might need to say something and, and it, it might be a, a fierce conversation. It might be a, a, an awkward conversation. Um, but isn't that better than just leaving them in their sin and um, not, not engaging? And so really the issue is motive at this point. Um, you can be judgmental and judge in, a, in an evil way, but we can make a judgment and we can kind of, uh, we can speak in graciously, we can speak humbly, uh, but we can speak firmly uh, mm. into that space. And actually to call people to repent is the most loving thing to do. And uh, if you can kind of save someone from their kind of uh, from their life of sin, which could lead them away from Jesus, then that's that's the best thing to do. And, and to be honest, personally, I've, I've appreciated different people at different stages of my life who've had the guts to rebuke me and to say, Sam, from where I'm standing, I'm going to make a judgment that the way you're living is ungodly, and you need to repent. And you need people like that; otherwise, you're just going to be left to your own folly and foolishness and make dumb decisions and sin and yeah, yeah you need those voices so if, if you've got you know someone in your world that you're looking at um, raise it with them lovingly but raise it with them graciously but don't be afraid to raise it I think so it takes guts takes wisdom mm. um, and you'd want to do it prayerfully mm. you know that's the other thing I'd say yeah I think that's fair alright mate last one um, this one is uh, trying to let me just read it. It says, In the Bible, uh, we learn that we are inherently sinful and we choose to disobey and reject God. But we also learn that our wrongdoings and temptations are the result of Satan working in our life. How do we reconcile those two things and not palm off the responsibility of our sin to Satan, but also not uh, dismiss or underestimate the evil work of Satan? <laughs> yep. So we are fully responsible for our own sin and rebellion. Uh, we can't blame God. We can't blame Satan. Satan doesn't actually work in us. What Satan does is accuse us, deceive us, and tempt us. That's perhaps a new category um, that we haven't talked about yet today. Um, and so Satan has no power on us. But if we believe the lie and he, we're tempted by him, and we... Um, so there's nothing wrong with being tempted, but if we um, act on that temptation... Uh, that's when we're we're sinful. Mm. Um, so yeah, Satan. Don't you don't have to fear that Satan's working in you. Satan's mm. outside of you. Um, and the trick is, uh, don't believe the lie mm. and don't fall for the temptation. Yeah, that's right. He 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 isn't working in you, and he can't make you do stuff. No, but he can tempt you to do stuff, and you're responsible. Um, but there's a great promise from God that whenever you're tempted, um, God will always provide a way out. And uh, where's that? Uh, what? Yeah, one Corinthians ten. Yeah. Um, uh, 12 and 13. Yeah, so I mean that, that's something to hang on to, to know that there's always a way out. Um, there's always uh, turning back to God, trusting God. And, and I mean, Jesus models for us in the moment of temptation when Satan is, Satan's not working in him, he's working on him. Um, but yes. Jesus always goes back to the Word of God, um, hangs on to the promises, the truths of God. Even when the devil wants to twist Scripture and tempt him that way, he goes, no, no, this is what is written, and, uh, and he stands firm. Um, 
and so he's not underestimating Satan, but he's also not not overestimating him and um, and turning back to God in that moment. All right, uh, we'll leave the questions there, mate. But just very quickly, uh, paint for us a quick picture. Where are we headed to this weekend in the book of Revelation? Revelation 15 and 16. Again, it's another angle on the same time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Maybe kind of more down the second coming stage. But the key is, and it's really interesting, is uh, I think the key is verse 15 of chapter 16, which says, uh, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed are those who stay awake and keep their clothes with them so that they may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Um, one of the fascinating things about Revelation is people often try and use Revelation to find out when is Jesus coming back and what are the signs. And actually, at the end of the day, he's still going to come like a thief. In other words, we're not going to know when, we're not going to know kind of how, but you've got to be ready. You've got to be awake. You've got to be alert. Um, are you ready for Jesus to come back? That's the challenge. Okay. Great. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you at church on Sunday. See you guys. Bye.